we're going to get into the to the text here. How many of you guys are overachievers and you have read Malachi in a, in, in preparation of tonight? No. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> well, that's all right. Well, the good news is this between now and next week, you've got time to read Malachi like seven times. Uh, it's four four chapters. The the, the fourth chapter is really short, so really it's like three and a half chapters long, um, and so you guys can read through it. And uh, now I'm just going to say you you read through Malachi, you don't get real encouraged by it. You know, it's not it's not Philippians. You know, it leaves you encouraged and, and just in love with the Lord. You still are in love with the Lord, but you feel you might be feeling a little guilty or a little uh, a little challenged by studying Malachi. Um, but, uh, but anyway, it is, a, it is a good book, and it is full. It is uh, a very rich three and a half chapters. And so, um, so let's get right into it. The first thing I want to talk about is the setting. Uh, where was Malachi written? Who wrote it? And, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, Malachi, what most people believe, there's, there's no date in here. There's nothing specific that says, you know, uh, 20 years after this king died, you know, Malachi got a word from the Lord. There's nothing like that. Um, so we just kind of have to infer from the content that's there uh, when Malachi was written. And so most people believe it was written um, in the latter part of the 5th century. So uh, sometime after the return of Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra came and rebuilt the temple. After the Babylonian captivity, he rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah followed and rebuilt the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And so most scholars think that uh, Malachi was written somewhere in the latter part of the 5th century um, because uh, Ezra returned in 458. You see that there on your, on your sheet. Ezra returned in 458 B.C. Nehemiah returned in four, uh, 444 B.C. Um, and so since uh, Ezra returned to build the temple and that reinitiated the, priestly, the priesthood and the priestly worship because if there's no temple, the priests have nothing to do. And so you can't really admonish priests for not doing what they're doing if there's no temple and no altar for them to do what they're supposed to do. And Malachi is full of uh, you know, chastising the, the priesthood. And so the temple must have already been restored in order for Malachi's uh, indictment to be uh, written. And it probably was restored for a fairly significant amount of time to allow the priests to have this much time to mess up. You know, basically, they've got to have enough time to do it wrong for Malachi to come in and say, hey, you guys keep doing it wrong. This is what the Lord says. Um, Malachi addresses similar issues as Nehemiah and Ezra, such as intermarriage, lack of support for the priest, and neglecting the poor. Um, and like I said, the, the temple worship had already been reinstated. And then the delivery of the message likely was in Jerusalem. It's directed, most of, uh, or probably about half of the content of Malachi is directed specifically to the priests. And so he probably wasn't out on a you know, mountainside on the Sea of Galilee chastising the priests. He was probably in Jerusalem where the priest, you know, temple worship was occurring, um, telling them what the Lord said. And so that's kind of the setting. Um, as far as who Malachi was, we don't know. There's no other reference to Malachi. Um, uh, Malachi, if you want to say it the right way, um, it's, it'd be something like Malachi. You know, or I don't know, there might be some gutturals in there, you know, like Malachi or something like that. But you got to be careful when you say that. You have to kind of wipe off your, your screen or your Bible when you say it like that. Um, but Malachi uh, means in Hebrew, my messenger or my angel. Um, so some scholars 
believe that Malachi wasn't even a human. He was just an angel that came to earth. Uh, but that's, that's pretty few and far between. Um, the way that Malachi describes some things makes it seem like he had a lot of Greek influence. So, you know, 444 B.C., uh, the Greek influence was very strong. Uh, the Roman Empire was, you know, uh, on the rise. And, um, uh, and so because Malachi uses the Persian word for governor in verse 1-8 instead of using the Hebrew word for governor, uh, most people believe that he probably came from some sort of Greek influence, maybe out in the diaspora, wherever he was uh, kept a uh, captive or something like that. Um, and Malachi uses the Socratic method to communicate. Uh, throughout this book, we see over and over where he says a statement, Israel objects and says, well, how have we done that? And then he goes into telling them how he, they have disobeyed the Lord. And that's kind of the Socratic method of Socrates. Uh, making a statement, causing an objection, and then going through with an explanation, and, you know, kind of discussing through questions. Um, in this book itself, just this short book, there's 23 questions that uh, Malachi poses to the Israelites throughout the, con- throughout, the, throughout the discussion. So that's kind of the setting of Malachi. Um, so let's get into, uh, and get into the text of it. Okay, so the first part is this oracle. Uh, if you look at verse 1, and what we're going to do, we're going to do things a little differently than we've done um, in previous web studies, uh, usually we kind of just take a section, pull out some principles of it. But what I want to try to do is just kind of work through this verse by verse. Uh, we'll take a section, read it, and then say what it has to say, and then we'll move right on to the next part. If we don't get done by you know seven o'clock, we'll just close up the book and start start next whenever we come here next week. Um, and so let's look at verse one. So verse one says, "The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi." Okay. Uh, no matter what your translation is, it probably says something similar to that. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So let's look at kind of what this, some of these words means. The Hebrew word for oracle is Massah. And it translates to this. It translates to a burden or a heavy load. So what this is saying is this is a heavy message that Malachi has for the Israelites. You know, he's not coming in with, a, with like a uh, American Greetings or Hallmark uh, birthday card. Um, this is a heavy, heavy message. Uh, there's not a whole lot of pleasantries in here. In fact, most of the pleasantries we're going to get through through chapter 5. And, you know, that's about as pleasant as the, I mean, uh, verse 5. That's about as pleasant as Malachi gets. Um, and so he comes in with a heavy message, the, the oracle of the word of the Lord. And so this word Massah translates to burden or load. Um, it was mainly used uh, as a pronouncement of judgment against a foreign nation. You see that list there that's on your page. Babylon, the Philistines, Egypt, Tyre, Nineveh, and then in Zephaniah 9.1, there's a whole list of countries that God pronounces judgment on. And whenever He pronounces judgment on these foreign countries, He uses this word Massah. Uh, and so t- the vast majority of the times this word is used is against foreign countries. Um, occasionally it's used uh, to pronounce judgment on a person, uh, such as King Ahab. It was used in, in that situation. But here it's against Israel, a very rare use of the word against God's own people. And so that's what oracle, the oracle refers to. And then it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now that word by, usually just gets translated by. What it literally means is by the hand of. So what that shows us is that there's a personal deliverance here. Like uh, Malachi comes to Israel and he delivers this message personally. Uh, that's why most, most people don't think that this is an angel. Um, they, they think that this is somebody who was literally a human. He was coming in. Um, he was uh, sharing this personal message of 
God's judgment. And so, um, yeah, let's see. I don't think I ever changed the, uh, the thing here. Okay, there it is. And then Malachi means my messenger or my angel. I think I already already mentioned that. So that kind of gets us that gets us through verse one. Uh, let's let's get on down to verse two and read about God's love. All right, let's read about God's love. Verse two says, "I have loved you," says the Lord. But you say, "How have you loved us?" Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And so this section talks about um, God's, uh, God's love. So let's kind of break this down for a little bit. The word that is used for love uh, is the word ahav. Uh, and it's used in the perfect tense. And so what that means is that it's a completed action with ongoing effect. Okay? So like if I say, I married Melody Jordan, which is her maiden name. I married Melody Jordan. That doesn't mean that I married her, you know, on one day, and then that whole marriage thing was over the next day. You know, whenever I say I married Melody, there's an event that happened, but it has ongoing effect. Okay? We're still married the next day, the next day, and the next day. Well, that's kind of what this is saying. God is saying, I have loved you. But it's not just, I have loved you on this certain date in the past. It's, I have loved you and ongoing, I continue to love you. It's something that, that God uses in, throughout the Old Testament to describe His covenantal love. Uh, it's used 32 times in the Old Testament to describe that kind of love. So it's a covenant love. It's not just an infatuation love or a temporary love. It's that covenant love that God has for Israel. And so that's what God, that's the, that's the word that is used there to, to describe God's love. And so he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And so this shows us the, uh, the first way that God shows his love in this passage is this, is God's love is declared by his word. Okay? God's love is declared by his word. In this instance, he just comes out and he says it. He says, I have loved you. Flat statement, there it is. You know, I have loved you. He just says it as a fact. And so God declares His love by His word here through the messenger Malachi. But that's not the only time that God has declared His love by His word. John 1.1 1, 1 says what? John 1.1 1, 1, or 1, 1 through 14 uh, through 18 says that Jesus Christ is the incarnate word of God. So the, the word was with God, then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, this word was the word of life. And we have come to know and believe that He is Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of the summary of 1 through 18 there in John chapter 1. And so John 1 says that, hey, God's Word has come now to know us. Oh, for those of you who are new, our lights are motion activated. So if y'all get too still in the back, they can turn off. There, Sean turned them on for us. So, so every once in a while, if you need the lights, you just kind of have to wave your hands around and, you know, and they'll come back on. Um, so God's word is declared here in Malachi, but then God's word becomes flesh in John chapter 1. It tells us that God's word became flesh, and he came and he dwelt among us. And so what does this, what does this word do? How does this word, how does Jesus Christ, who is the word of God become flesh, declare God's love to us? Well, um, Romans 5.8 you know, tells us that. Romans 5.8 says that well, God shows his love for, in the, uh, for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in other words, 
God shows His love for us in this, that while we were sinners, the Word died for us. And so God's Word, once again, declares His love for us. And so uh, God's love is declared by His Word. God's, word is, uh, God's love is also shown by His election. Now I realize after I got this, I probably could have written this better. I don't mean God's election of Himself, but obviously God's election of Israel. You know, God's love is shown by His election of Israel as His people. His choosing of Israel as His people. And the way that He makes sure that they understand this is He begins talking about Jacob and Esau. And so, uh, quick question for you. Who came first? Jacob and Esau or Moses? Jacob and Esau. Alright, good. I don't. I, I like. I don't ask. I don't like. I don't ask rhetorical questions a whole lot. You guys can answer. It's okay. So uh, I know y'all thought I was trying to trick you, but I don't ever do that. I'm not a tricky kind of guy, right? Uh, yeah, Jacob and Esau came first, right? Um, so there's you know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so you had Jacob and Esau, and and God says this. He says uh, he says is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. And so in other words, God said, here's how you know that I love you, is that I chose you. I didn't choose Esau. I chose Jacob. Israel is the descendants of Jacob. They're Abraham's line through Isaac and then through Jacob, who became Israel. And so that is where the line comes from. And God is saying, look, I chose Jacob over Esau. Who was the one who was supposed to receive the birthright and that first blessing? It was Esau. He was the oldest child. Yet God told uh, Rebekah before they were even born that the younger will, or the older will serve the younger. And um, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9. He says, uh, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so in this episode, or this part of Malachi right here, we see that God just chose to love Israel. He picked Israel. He could have picked Esau. He could have picked you know who became the Edomites. He could have picked them, but he chose Jacob. For no, Jacob wasn't more worthy. In fact, as you look through the through the story of Jacob and Esau, you know I kind of feel sorry for Esau sometimes because Jacob's a little squirrely little punk. You know, I mean he cheats his he cheats him out of his birthright and he cheats him out of his blessing. And, you know, Rebecca's not a whole lot better. She's right there in the mix of it, right? And so, uh, you know, Jacob was kind of a, he's kind of a, kind of a trickster, kind of a prankster, and, uh, and he was a cheat. And so, you know, when I look at that, I'm thinking, I kind of feel sorry for, for Esau. Um, but nevertheless, before any of that happened, God chose Jacob. And so he uses this story of Jacob and Esau to remind Israel why they're his people. It's not because they were good. It's not because they... Their ancestors were so great. Uh, it's not because um, you know of anything that they have done. It's not because of anything that Esau did, or because of what Esau's descendants did. He just—they're his people just because he picked them. And so God's love is unconditional in that respect. You know, God's love is not based on the fact that they keep the law of Moses because 
He chose Jacob before the law of Moses. And so there's no, there's no qualifications here other than just, hey, you're my people. I love you, and if you will love me back, this is all going to go great. You know, if you, will just, if you will just love me the way that I love you, then, um, then this will go great. Now, he, he continues to show that not only it was his election back then, but his election is now too. And so he says, verse 4, If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may rebuild, but I will tear it down. They will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord uh, is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And so what does this mean? Well, at this point in history, uh, Edom, which is Esau's descendants, had been conquered. And um, the, uh, the I've got to read this so I don't read it wrong. The Nabataean Arabs uh, were relocating them. They were moving them to a new place. And they settled them in an area called the uh, Idumea. So they were the Idumean area. Um, and so they, they had moved them away. And so this was coming true as God was saying it. Because this happened around 550 to 400 B.C. when the uh, Edomites were being moved. And so God is kind of bringing this about uh, in this same time. That's why he says, your own eyes shall see this. And so he was seeing that uh, Edom was still being forced out of their country. Their land was wasted. They were not able to settle. They were not a blessed country. He was still living out and carrying out his promise of choosing Jacob over Esau. That was still going on. And this uh, continues to carry itself out even into the time of Jesus. We still see the rejection of Edom and the selection of, uh, of the Israelites. And so the rejection of Esau and the choosing of Jacob. Because does anybody know where King Herod was from? King Herod is known as uh, King Herod the Great. He was an Edomian. He was from the uh, he was from Edom. He was a descendant of Esau. And so whenever Rome came in, they needed a puppet king to put into place. And so they knew that uh, the Edomites were kind of related to the Israelites, and so they just picked King Herod to be the king over Israel, not knowing the backstory that there was all this drama. That went on in the background. So imagine King Herod. He knew all this history, right? I mean, how could you not grow up in that culture and know those stories and know the history of how God chose Jacob over Esau and all that went into that? And so imagine if you're King Herod, you're sitting on your throne, and all of a sudden some wise men from the east come to you and say, there's been born one who is king of the Jews. And what does that say to you? Great. Once again, God has rejected Esau and has chosen Jacob. And so this continues to play itself out even up to the time of Jesus. And so this is how God has, is showing His love uh, for Israel by, their, uh, by His declaring uh, His love and also by His election. And so let's move on to, uh, to verse 6. Now verse 6, and we're going to read all the way through uh, chapter 2 verse 9 in this section. Uh, so this is a large passage that we're going to read. And uh, this is going to kind of fall into the category of the indictment and discipline of the priesthood. So uh, let me pick up in verse 6 and, and read. You guys follow along with me. He says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. 
Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, What a weariness this is! And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Uh, continue on to chapter 2, verse 1. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know what I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And so that is the indictment and the discipline of the priesthood. And so let's... uh, uh, let's look through here and, and see what the Lord has to, to say to us here in, in 2017. And so the indictment of the priesthood, the first thing that we see um, is that God says he was not given proper honor and glory. Verse 6 says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. And so the Israelite priests were not giving God the proper uh, honor glory, uh, reverence that they deserved. Uh, this word fear um, that, is, that is here is one of those, is that word that doesn't like mean cowering in a corner afraid of, but um, it, it kind of combines a sense of reverence and a sense of that fear, fearness that kind of goes along with it. You know, we fear the Lord. We, we should be, in a sense, afraid of God. You know, God, snap his fingers right now, we'd all be dead and it would be justified if he wanted to do that. Um, there should be a sense of reverential fear towards God. Uh, the New Testament tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, there's a, there's a sense to where we realize we're in the hands of God, that He has power and control over us. One of the most effective messages um, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the Great Awakening, uh, I think his Brother David referenced this on Sunday, I believe, um, one of the greatest messages of the Great Awakening uh, was um, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And, uh, you know, whenever, um, I keep, I'm drawing a blank, Edwards, when Jonathan Edwards preached that message, he wasn't, I mean, he was not Brother David. Your Brother David is 
he smiles, he's funny, he's kind of entertaining. You know, he dives deep into the Word, but he makes you enjoy it, right? Usually whenever Jonathan Edwards uh, preached, he did this. He would put it, he'd kind of lean his hand on the podium, and he would just read it. God was not given proper honor and glory. The priest despised God's name. Does that sound very exciting? No. But whenever he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, his visuals were just so captivating. The Holy Spirit was moving in such a way that people literally were hanging on to the pillars of the church because they were afraid at any moment the floors of the church were going to split open and they were going to fall into hell. And um, that's, we need to have you know, a sense of fear, of recognition of who God is. He is a he is a, a, a an awe-inspiring, a powerful, a, a terrible God in certain ways. Not terrible as in bad, but terrible as in just terrifying in some aspects. You know, if you're a non-believer, he should be extremely terrifying. You know, for us on this side of grace, we know the love of the Lord. Um, but uh, but you know, there's you have to have both of those there. You have to understand who he is. And uh, these priests had had forgotten that they were not giving him the proper honor and glory that he is due. Um, and so uh, we, that's something that, that he indicted them on. He also indicted them that they despised his name. And this word despise means they considered it insignificant. He says in verse 6, um, uh, Son honors his father. If I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise by name. And so that word despise means to consider insignificant. And they gave it ongoing disrespect. It's the same word, going back to Esau, it's the same word used to describe Esau's contempt for his birthright. Remember whenever he, he was hungry, he came in from the field, and Jacob's in the kitchen cooking, and he says, hey, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, give me your birthright. And he says, well, what good is it to me if I'm dead? Here, take it. And the scripture says, in that way, Esau despised his birthright. It's that same, it's that same word. So it doesn't mean despise, and oh, gross, I hate that. It just means that he considered it insignificant. It wasn't worth anything. It had no value. So that's the same word that the... God is using here of the priests. Now you think about that. The priests. What the, what's the priest's only job? It's to offer worship and sacrifice in the temple. I mean, their only, God, their only job is loving God, <laughs> of honoring God, of worshiping God, of sacrificing to God. And they could care less. You know, you mentioned Yahweh to them, they're like, eh. You know, they don't, they're like, we could take it or leave it. You know, no skin off my back, whatever. That's how they were treating Yahweh. Yet they were the very priests who were supposed to be honoring Him in such a way. They had lost the significance of God, the awe-inspiring, breathtaking aspects of God. He had no value to them whatsoever. The next thing that he gets them on is that uh, they were presented unacceptable sacrifices to God. This is in verses 7 through 12, kind of a long section there. We won't read the whole thing, but he talks about animals that are, uh, that are blind, um, animals that are sacrifices that are polluted, uh, lame or sick animals. And uh, all throughout, if you go to the book of Leviticus, um, the book of Leviticus all throughout it, when it describes the sacrifices, uh, there's a word that it uses almost all the way through there, it says unblemished. Whenever you're supposed to offer a sacrifice, it's supposed to be an unblemished sacrifice. So you go out to the to the, your sheep pen and you're trying to pick out a lamb for a sacrifice. You got this good looking lamb. You know, you're going through it, and man, this is just a great looking lamb, but right there on its back end leg, it's got a little black spot about that big. Well that little black spot disqualifies it. It's gotta be a pure, unblemished lamb. You know, it's gotta be a spotless lamb. Now, Jesus is referred to as the spotless lamb of God. 
it had to be a purely, you know, spotless lamb that was offered for the sacrifices. And whatever sacrifice, if it was a bull, it had to be a, a spotless bull. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I guess y'all been watching the news lately, where uh, Israel is now in con- Israeli police is now in control of the Temple Mount. Um, back on Friday, I believe it was, uh, there was a Palestinian terrorist shooting where they shot some Israeli police, and so. Israeli police shut down the Temple Mount, which has been under Jordanian control for since 1967. Um, now Israel is in control of the Temple Mount, which is getting people who are uh, Israeli prof- prophetics and you know all that kind of stuff really excited and antsy <laughs> because of all that that means potentially means. Um, but uh, one of the things that Israel is looking forward to is reinstating the Temple and reinstating Temple worship, and the way that they plan to purify. The temple elements is to sacrifice a red heifer. Um, they get that out of, out of scripture. Uh, and so they have uh, engineered a purely red heifer that has no white hairs or any other kind of hairs on it whatsoever. And I want to give you one guess where they found went to get a red heifer. Because they had to buy bioengineer this thing. Y'all know where they got it from? A&M. A&M. <laughs> and so, I mean, of course... If you need something pure and perfect, where do you go? You go to Texas A&M, right? <laughs> hey, you just stay back there in the back, you know? <laughs> That's all right. I'm the one teaching. If y'all want to come teach, y'all can talk about UT. But, you know. So the sacrifices had to be perfect, yet the sacrifices they were offering were, were messed up. They were unclean. They were unacceptable. And so they were ignoring Leviticus. You know, Leviticus in the chapters 11 through 17, Leviticus, uh, the Lord goes on and on and on and on about what are acceptable and unacceptable sacrifices. You know, there's like six chapters there, seven chapters there that are just about what is acceptable and unacceptable. Uh, so it's not like it was a hidden thing that the priests couldn't know about it. It's all spelled out there in the scripture. Um, and so they, they just needed to go and look for it. And so he says, you've been offering all the sacrifices and then we, that are unacceptable. And then he gets to verse 9. Now, verse 9, depending on your Bible, may be an indention or may not. Most of them are not. But it says, verse 9, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Um, that's kind of a inserted quote. You know, kind of like uh, <clears throat> uh, Malachi is telling them all these things. And they're like, oh, ask the Lord to be gracious to us. And he says, how dare you ask that? You know, how dare you do all these things and then ask the Lord to be gracious to you? And that word "ask" literally means to smooth over. If we were if we were saying it, then we would say, "Hey, Malachi, why don't you sweet talk the Lord for us and ask Him to be gracious to us?" So Malachi is saying, "How could you possibly ask the Lord to be gracious to you in this moment?" And and he says to uh, um, he talks about uh, offering those things to to the governor. Verse eight, he says, "Would you offer those that are lame or sick?" Uh, uh, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? You know, he's saying, look, you give your governor the best because he you have to. If you don't, if you go give your governor a lame animal, animal, he's going to kill you. He's not going to accept it. He's going to take away your privilege. He's going to take away your possessions, your your status. You wouldn't dare do that. Yet you come to me with all these impure offerings. You know, why don't you give me your best, like you give everything else the best? And um, how dare you come and ask me for? my blessings. And so the sacrifices were unacceptable. The priests were apathetic going through the motions of worship. Uh, it says in verse uh, verse 13, 
But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. That word, um, that word weariness is the same word used to describe the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So in, um, uh, there's, a, there's a place in Exodus and uh, in, uh, in Numbers where uh, it talks about the hardships that the Israelites endured. And this is that same word that's translated weariness. And so in other words, the priests are saying, oh man, this is just as hard as those, those Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years or those Israelites being enslaved in Egypt. Our job is just as hard and toilsome as that. So can you imagine? You know, a couple weeks ago, if you were in Sunday school, uh, we, we read a psalm. Um, uh, it, started, uh, it was talking about going to the, to the temple and how awesome it was to go to the temple. It was written by the uh, sons of Korah. And remember, the sons of Korah were gatekeepers of the temple complex. And so every day... The sons of Korah got up and they went to the gate and they stood by the gate and then they went home. And they got up and they went to the gate and they stood by the gate and then they went home. And what did that psalm say? Oh, at night, I just think about it. I can't wait to go back to the house of the Lord. Every day, they just couldn't wait to get up and go stand by the gates of the house of the Lord. That was their job. Day in, day in, day in, day in. It never says, oh, this is so hard. I have to get up in the morning and go to the house of the Lord. Yet that's what the priests in this context are saying. And so God is saying, you know, you say this is such hard work, but you have the opportunity to go and to worship and to present sacrifices. Uh, the next one is they offered stolen and blemished offerings. This is in verse 13. Um, and so they will, uh, it says that uh, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Whereas David said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, uh, no, he's offered a, a, a field um, uh, to offer burnt offerings and, and the guy, he wants to buy it and the guy says, here, I'll just give it to you. He says, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, uh, my God, that cost me nothing. You know, David, even when he was offered something to use as a sacrifice, he said, no, if I'm going to sacrifice it, it's going to cost me something. Yet these guys were going and stealing animals to offer to the Lord. So the priests, you know, they, they look at their animals and they're like, oh man, these are all too good. I'm going to go take that guy's animals and offer it instead because I don't want to give up any of my animals. They were stealing. It wasn't costing them anything. And if you jump down into uh, chapter 2, you see verse 8. He begins, uh, he gives four things that the priest did. He says, you have turned aside from the way, which means that the priest disobeyed God. So, you know, God had laid out the path of obedience and the priest had turned from them. Uh, the priest had misled the people. Mark 9.42 talks about the consequences of such an action. It says, Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus had no place for people misleading, uh, misleading uh, people by their teaching. Uh, the priests broke covenant for, with God. Uh, they disobeyed the covenant and broke the covenant of Levi. And then the priests judged, uh, judged the people unfairly. Um, that's, that's found there in, in the end, verse 9. Um, they show partiality in their instructions. So they treated the people unfairly. And so four final kind of condemnations of, of, the, uh, of these, this priesthood. Now, let's look back through that. Because we think, okay, well, this is an indictment on the priest. But in, uh, in, in our day and time, and this is at the end of, if you look at that verse reference there on the end of the back page, it says First uh, Peter chapter 2, um, that references the new priesthood. Who is the new priesthood? Nowadays. We are, right? It says that you are a royal priesthood. You, we are now God's priests. 
So as we look through these things that we just saw, and as you look back through them this week, these are indictments on us if we're not doing them. We are the priests of the Lord now. You know, I'm not a priest because I'm a pastor. Brother Dave is not a priest because he's the leader of our church. Uh, whoever is the Catholic priest in town is not any more of a priest than you or I. Just because he's been ordained a priest in the Catholic Church means nothing to the Lord. We are all priests. We are all representatives of our God, of Jesus Christ, and we are His representatives to the people. If people want to come to Jesus, He chooses to use us to introduce them to the, to the gospel message and to be a, a pathway to introduce them to Jesus Christ so that they can have salvation and they can become a priest themselves. Um, and so we as the church are the priests of the Lord in this day and time. And so we have to recognize that, that we as the church are being condemned in this way if we choose to disobey God or mislead people or break covenant with God or treat people unfairly. If we are apathetic and go through the motions of our worship. If we offer sacrifices that don't cost us anything. Um, if we give unacceptable sacrifices to God. If we don't give God the proper honor and glory. Then we're just as guilty as these priests were in 444 B.C. Or, or whenever this was written. And so God initiates some discipline for these priests. He says that these priests are cursed and their blessings are cursed. This is in verse 2-2. So He says, you are cursed and your blessings are cursed. Um, so they, they receive the, the rejection and the cursing of the Lord, and not just themselves, but the blessings that God had given them. Uh, their children would be under God's judgment. So this is something that was going to affect their kids as well. You know, God's judgment on them was so severe, it was going to affect their kids. And so, after Malachi gets done with his message, how many years later was it that they, the Israelites heard from the Lord again? It wasn't until you know, 3 B.C. or whenever it was that Jesus was born. So about 400 years, at least 400 years later, when Jesus was born, that God's message finally came back to earth. And between that time, a 400-year silence... Now, you've probably been mad at your friends before. Maybe you didn't talk to each other for a couple of days, or maybe you didn't talk to each other for a couple of years or something like that. Imagine being a priest in Israel and not hearing from God for 400 years. Not getting a message from a prophet. I mean, not even having a prophet come by and say, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, at least if God says, comes and says, hey, you're doing it wrong, at least you've heard from God in a way. But for 400 years, they hear nothing, just silence. No dial tone, nothing. It's just dead on that end. And so that was a curse upon these Levitical priests. So, so these Levitical priests, their children never heard from God. And their great-grandchildren never heard from God. And their great-great-great-grandchildren never heard from God for 400 years. And so their children were under God's judgment. They will be publicly humiliated. Uh, if you ever thought that God was creative in His judgment, this is a creative judgment. He says, Behold, I will break your offspring, and I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Y'all know what dung is, right? I don't have to go into that. Okay, good. Alright, so you can just imagine the priests. I mean, what did the priests wear? They wore like robes. You know, the high priest had the ephod and all that kind of stuff. These guys didn't slouch around and, uh, you know, surf for clothes or something like that. I mean, they were all decked out. They were dressed up nice. And God is saying, I'm going to wipe the dung from your sacrifices. All those bulls and sheep that you sacrificed, I'm going to smear their excrement on your faces in front of everybody. And then I'm going to take you away with it. 
you know, because the, the refuse of the animals, you know, was scooped and taken out and thrown away, right? Well, God is saying, look, I'm taking you right out, uh, right outside to the fertilized pen, and I'm throwing you out there with them. And so you think about that. After Malachi, um, there's no uh, communication between God and the priests, and in 400 years, the priests are what? They are ushered out of the temple. There's no need for priests anymore because Jesus has come. He has reestablished relationship with, with, uh, with God, between God and man. Now the church is the royal priesthood. There's no need for the Levitical priesthood anymore. They have been ushered out and cast away. And so God brought this about just as He had promised. And then finally, there will be, well, that's it. They will be removed from their place or their role. So verse 3, they'll be removed from their place or their role. All right? And so that gets us through um, those, uh, that kind of condemnation of the, uh, of the Levitical priesthood. Now the next session is the role of a true priest. Okay, now we can do this if y'all want to. That's going to push us past 7 o'clock. So you guys want to just finish through or do y'all want to start this next week? Next week? Okay. We'll start it next week. So next week uh, we will look at, we'll kind of back up and read Malachi 2, 4 through 7. And look at the true role of a priest. Um, if you look down at the, uh, at the bottom, let's just kind of look at the takeaways that we've already talked about. Um, the first one is God's unmerited love invites us into a covenant relationship with Him in which He received glory, honor, and appropriate sacrifice and in which we receive the blessings of God through Christ. And so that's kind of the overarching message of what we looked at tonight. Um, God's unmerited, undeserved, we didn't earn God's love, God's unmerited love invites us into that relationship with Him, and we receive the blessings of the Lord through Christ. And a few scriptures that kind of talk about this, 1 Corinthians one twenty-five describes Jesus at the Last Supper. He says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That ushered in that new covenant relationship with the Lord. Romans 12.1 says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Uh, you know, If you present your body as a sacrifice to God, you're giving all of yourself to Him. And Ephesians 1.3 says that we receive every spiritual blessing uh, in, through Jesus Christ. Um, and another takeaway is that worship is an attitude of our hearts, not the outward action of our lives. Before God accepts our actions, He inspects our hearts. So worship is an attitude of our hearts, not the outward actions of our lives. Before God accepts our actions, He expects our hearts. We need to realize that, you know, unlike the... We, we can't be like the priests who just went through the motions. You know, they kept offering sacrifices. They offered sacrifices on up to Jesus' time. Uh, yet they were just going through the motions. There was no relationship. There was no experience. There was no connection with the Lord. Um, God knows our hearts. And He's only going to accept our actions if our hearts are in love and in a relationship with Him. We can't fake Him out. You know, God's perceptive. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. And so if we can... You can give all the money you want. You can serve in the church all you want. You can do all the ministry and missions and charity that you want. But if your heart does not belong to the Lord, it's empty. It's worthless. There's no point in it. And so the goal is for us to, to love Him with a true love, just as He has loved us. And, uh, and so we'll look at the role of a true priest next week. And then we'll continue through chapter 2 and see what else the Lord has to say to us. All right? All right, good deal. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for this evening. Thank you for everyone who's here tonight. I pray that you would just bless them. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, cause all of us, as uh, members of your royal priesthood, Lord, that you would call all of us 
to um, examine our hearts. Uh, see, Lord, if we are offering you uh, diseased offerings or uh, blemished offerings, Lord. We know that we're not perfect and we never will be this side of heaven. But Lord, we should still give you the best of our best and give you the first fruits of what we have. And we should, uh, not just of, of finances, Lord, but of all that we have, because it all comes from you. So whether it's a gift or a talent or a, a uh, ability or uh, something like that, Lord, we just want to, we need to offer you the best of what we have instead of giving you what's left over. So I pray that we would just examine ourselves this week, compare ourselves to this priesthood that you indicted and um, see where we need to walk more in line with you. God, we continue to pray for these we've mentioned tonight and so many others that were not mentioned. We just pray your blessings on them and ask that you will uh, walk with them through their medical needs and whatever else they're experiencing, Lord. Uh, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that it has never failed us and it never will. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.